Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. Focus needs to go hand in hand with purpose. I talk about leading a purpose-focused life. And people talk about being intentional with our lives, right? Lead an intentional life. It's like, okay, how would you lead an intentional life if you don't even know what you want? Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 189 of Passion Struck, one of the top alternative health podcasts. And thank you to each and every one of you who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And in case you're new to the show and you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, you can find it at John R. Miles, where we have over 400 different videos, some which are long-form content like this podcast, and others which we call Mindset Moments, which are two to four minutes long. Please go there check it out and subscribe. In case you missed it, earlier this week, I had on Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman and Jordan Feingold, where we discuss the release of their brand new book, Choose Growth, how to use transcendence to face fear, self-doubt, and so many other things. Last week, I interviewed Dr. Cassie Holmes, who's the foremost expert in the world on time and happiness, and we launched her brand new book, Happier Hour. I also had on Jeff Pfeiffer, who's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and we discussed his brand new book, Build for Tomorrow. And lastly, I had on a special guest, Seth Godin, and we discussed his brand new collaborative book, The Carbon Almanac, and why it is so important over the next 10 years that we put extreme focus on system change to deal with the climate issue that is facing all of us. Please go and check them all out. And I wanted to say thank you for your ratings and reviews. They mean so much to us when we get them and helping expand the reach of this show as well as improving our ratings on Spotify and Apple. Now let's talk about today's guest. Dandapani is a Hindu priest, entrepreneur, and was a monk for 10 years. He is a highly sought after international speaker and leading expert on leveraging the human mind and the power of focus to create a life of purpose and joy. His TEDx talk has over 6.2 million views and his Gold Coast videos garnered in total over 75 million views in just five months. He is the author of the powerful new book, The Power of Unwavering Focus, a book that aligns to everything that we discuss here on the Passion Struck podcast. And in our interview, Dan Dapani shares his philosophy on why we are what we practice and how most people are practicing distraction in their lives. And thus, they become masters of distraction. Dandapani goes into his guidance for how you go from this world of distraction to a world of concentration by learning the power of small, building concentration, willpower, and the mastery of awareness into your days and into the micro choices that you make in the moments that make up those days. And we go into so much more. Really a fabulous interview that you don't want to miss. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am honored and absolutely thrilled to welcome Don Dapani onto the Passion Struck Podcast. Welcome, Don Dapani. Thank you so much. Such an honor and pleasure to be here as well. Thank you for having me on the show. When I heard about the opportunity to interview you, I just had to jump on it because your message coincides so much with what we're trying to teach people here on the podcast about focus, living life intentionally, and how do you go about creating this path to self-realization that I think so many people feel is out of reach, but is closer than they even realize if they apply some of the philosophies that we're going to talk about today. But before we unpack all that, I did want to say congratulations on your recently released book. I'll put a copy of it right up here so people can see it. And on the YouTube channel, we'll make sure that it stands out. But I know how much effort it goes into creating a book like this. So congratulations. And I hope the audience enjoys it as much as I did, and as well as people throughout the world. I thought a good place for having the audience 
to get to know you a little bit better is we all have moments that define us. What is a defining moment for who you are today? I would say the day I met my guru or the moment when I met my guru. Uh, he was the most influential person in my life. And yeah, the day I met him, that would be the defining moment, I would say, for sure. And what stood out for you on that day about him that drew you to him so much? I felt that he was someone that spoke from experience as opposed to speaking from something he had read or intellectually understood. Rather, he had experienced something so well that when he shared, you could feel that it was coming from a place of inner experience as opposed to an intellectual learning or understanding. And and there's a big difference between intellectually knowing something and realizing something. Realization transforms the way your life is. Intellectually understanding doesn't really change your life. And I give an example of that in the book as well. Well, did you want to touch on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure, I can. So in the book, I gave an example of how I take a person uh, named Julie, for example, and Julie dies. Julie realizes that everyone dies in life. The death of her father impacts her. She understands that we die. She carries on with her life. She's still sad about her dad's death. That would be an intellectual understanding of, yes, we all die at some point. Another Julie could have the realization of death where her father dies. She realizes that life is finite, that we will all die. And that realization that there is a clock ticking away somewhere with your time on it causes her now to profoundly change the way she lives her life and how she interacts with the world around her, the people and things around her. And I would say that would be the difference between understanding something and realizing something. Realizing something causes a profound change in our behavior, our lifestyle, our perspective. That all completely changes. Well, I liked how in the book you did mention that a lot of times people give this saying, life is short, and you like to put the twist on it that life is finite. What is that small little twist makes such a big difference in our outlook? Because I think people always say, I think we as humans tend to repeat things that are commonly said. You know, everybody says, oh, life is short. So we go, oh, life is short. But it's anything but short. If I get to live five more years, that's a long time. And in the book, I give an example. If you're stuck in traffic for two hours, you're like, oh, it's only two hours. That's not very long. You go like two hours. Oh my God, I was stuck in traffic for two hours. And that two hours felt like eternity. So if you get to live for two hours, isn't that a long time as well? So I call it finite because there's a clear definitive end to it. We just don't know when it is. I'm 48 years old. I hope I get to live to my 90s, but there's no guarantee. And if I do get to live to my 90s, it could be another 50 years potentially. That's a really long time. That's anything but short. Now, if I'm able to focus and be present through my ability to focus in each of those moments, then those 50 years can feel like a thousand years because I'm deeply enjoying each moment or experiencing, I should say better than enjoying, experiencing each moment and having a profound experience in that time. So short is not correct in my mind. It's finite. Our life is anything but short. Even one year is a long time. While you're in the year, it seems like it's a long time. When you finish the year and you look back, it seems like it happened in an instant. I'm not sure if you ever have that feeling, but sometimes that's how it feels like for me. Yeah, no, I, I do as well. I look back and I go like, holy smokes, it's August 22nd now. 2022, how did we get to 2022 so quickly? But my days are also very full because I feel intentional about how I live my life, what I'm doing, who I'm interacting with. So my days are quite filled and planned out with activities, engagements with people that I want to spend time with. And I feel because you're always doing things that matter to you, then it feels like the day goes by quickly. But when I look back at the year, I go like, my gosh, 
I've done so many things. I met so many wonderful people. I've had so many wonderful conversations. It's not an experience where I haven't had any of those. It's an experience where I, I had wasteful moments. It was very all very thoughtful and intentional. Well, that's great. And I, for the listener, I am speaking to you and you're in Costa Rica and you're actually being very intentional about creating a sanctuary there. And I was hoping you might be able to tell the audience a little bit more about it. Isn't it called Shiva Ashram? Correct. Yes, it's called Siva Ashram. It's a 33-acre spiritual sanctuary and a botanical garden. We've had the land for about nine years. We've been clearing it. It's kind of an abandoned pasture with second growth weeds and things. So we've been clearing it, keeping the native trees. We've planted about 4,000 to 5,000 trees and plants in the last nine years. The gardens will be broken up into seven smaller gardens, each representing a different area of the mine. So as visitors one day when it's open, walk through the gardens, they will learn about the mine. And, and it's built for children and adults. So even children can walk through, learn about the mind, uh, learn about subconscious, the superconscious area of the mind, learn how to focus, learn how to develop willpower. Skills we all should have been taught at school, but we've never been. So but how amazing would it be to empower a child of four or five years old with the skills or tools needed to concentrate, to discover oneself and one's purpose in life early on so we could spend our life living our purpose as opposed to our whole life looking for our purpose. I think you're very right about what you were just saying. My daughter just graduated high school. We actually just took her to University of Florida where she's in the engineering school. And I know you're an engineer yourself. Yeah, um, But I think about her education and her older brothers and looking back, I think we teach people grammar, we teach people history, we teach science and STEM programs, but we don't really teach some of the most important life skills like you're bringing up. And I think you do a good job describing this in the book when you talk about ADHD and how today there's just this natural desire to put someone on drugs to deal with it instead of going after the underlying reason for why the person is experiencing the traits that they're experiencing. And I think if we would concentrate more on teaching people some of the basics of habits that bring about success, it would make such a profound difference in how people are living their lives and doing it with intention. I just wanted to get your thoughts about that. Yeah, no, for sure. And the big point I make about the ADHD in the book, you know, I give a story in the book where I share a man comes up to me at an event I'm doing and my son's been diagnosed with ADD and now he's on drugs and I'm really unhappy about it. And I said, look, I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a doctor. I don't understand ADD really well. Can you explain to me what the essence of the issue is? He says, well, my son has a really hard time concentrating or staying focused. He's easily distracted at school, at home, and everywhere. So the doctor diagnosed him with attention deficit disorder. He couldn't keep his attention on one thing for prolonged periods of time and has drugged him. So my question then to the father is, if he has problem, trouble concentrating or focusing, and I use those words synonymously, concentration and focus, has anyone actually ever taught him how to concentrate? That goes, no. And I go, well, how can we drug someone for not being able to do something we haven't taught them to do? Your daughter's going to engineering school. What type of engineering is she going to be doing? Do you, does she know? Her declared major is chemical. Okay, chemical engineering. So if she goes first year of uh, chemical engineering and she hasn't had a class yet, they put her in there, they ask her to solve a complex problem, which she's never been taught how to, and if she can't solve it, they label her with some acronyms and drug her for it. Would that be fair? No, right? The first thing is to teach her how to solve these chemical engineering problems and then help her to practice it so she can solve it. Same thing with everything else. And I give an example. What if I said to the father, what if we took your son, if your son wanted to learn the piano, to play the piano and he couldn't play the piano, 
because no one taught him to. So we labeled him with PPD, piano playing disorder, and drugged him for it. Would that be fair? And he goes, no. So I go, it's the same thing. I'm not saying the diagnosis that he has attention deficit is bad. It's okay to diagnose someone with, oh, he has trouble concentrating. There's nothing wrong with that. All I'm pushing back again is, should we drug them as the first step? Or should we teach them to concentrate, help them to practice concentrate so they can actually be good at it? And after a few years of teaching them and practicing it, they still struggle. Maybe medication can assist. But it shouldn't be our first go-to. The first thing is to teach them how to focus. Not drug them because they can't. We'll be right back to my interview with Don Dapani. What's better than finding quality candidates? Finding them right now for a powerful hiring partner you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. And something that I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does all the hard work for you. Sponsor a job and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job inscription immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring so fast. So join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with the $75 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at indeed.com slash hash offer good for a limited time claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash hash indeed.com slash hash terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed now back to my interview with Don Dapani. well you're speaking to the choir here because I'm a believer of limiting any medication I possibly can unless it's absolutely essential and I can't find another way to naturally work through it. So I'm a little bit older than you, but I don't take a single medication and have found ways to deal with different things that have come at me, whether it's been diet or lifestyle changes instead of having to use medication to cope with it. When I was growing up, I got teased all the time, like I said in the book, for not being able to concentrate. And this was in the 70s and 80s in Asia, where I don't think there was such a thing as ADD or ADHD. So people were like, oh, he can't focus. So it wasn't until I'm in my mid-20s did my guru teach me how to concentrate. So almost 25 years had elapsed before I learned to concentrate and can learn to concentrate. So... What does that show you? It shows you that we can learn to concentrate at any age and not being able to concentrate is not a disorder. It's not a permanent problem that one can overcome that. All one needs to do is learn how to do it and practice doing it. Granted, there may be some people who might have a physiological condition that they really struggle to concentrate. That's acceptable. But I think for the majority of the people that we've never been taught it. I'm not saying it's a blanket rule for everyone, but I just think for the majority of us, we've never been taught how to concentrate. And that's why we struggle with it. Well, I think it's the same thing is consider being an entrepreneur. I mean, people say, are you born an entrepreneur or do you learn to be one? And I believe in the latter, that even if you have some inherent abilities where you're more prone to take risk, there's still a learning curve in being a good entrepreneur versus being a bad one. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to concentration or any other trait that we want to build inside of us. I did want to go into your experience at the monastery because I think it has played such a profound role in your life. But I understand that there are different types of monasteries. I think a lot of people think of the Buddhist monastery. You were in a Hindu monastery. What is the difference between the two? First of all, Buddhism came out of Hinduism. Buddha was a Hindu prince that left his family's kingdom and went out and in search of enlightenment, became enlightened, started teaching, and that became then known as Buddhism. I would say they share very common beliefs. Both religions, they believe in reincarnation. 
karma. But where they differ is Buddhism doesn't believe in God, whereas Hinduism does believe in God. And Hinduism is monotheistic. It believes in one God and many angels and great angels. So that's kind of the philosophy side of Buddhism and Hinduism. So in Hindu monasteries, and obviously there's many different types of Hindu monasteries. In, in the monastery I was in, the goal was self-realization or enlightenment. And that was the pursuit of monastics joining the monastery. So only monks under vows were allowed to live within the monastery. And we followed a very strict routine and regimen uh, every single day. And our guru was the head of the monastery that guided the, the monks in their, in their journey of spiritual unfoldment. Well, I wanted to ask, what are three of the biggest learnings for you from being in the monastery for 10 years that have propelled your life forward? I would say one of the things as a monk is that is renunciation. So you literally give up everything and everyone in your life. In the early years, I only spoke twice to my parents on the phone, no emails, no letters, never spoke to any of my friends or relatives again. My life as I knew it before being a monastic was completely gone. And I lived in a hut in the monastery that was 10 feet by 10 feet wide and 10 feet tall. So I had a futon mattress, a sheet, a little oil lamp, a pillow, a blanket, and, and that was it. And that was my home for a decade. And I realized that one of the biggest realizations was that you really don't need much in life. We have stuff, man. We have so much stuff. And we keep accumulating stuff in the world. Amazon makes it so easy to buy stuff. You just go on that and you buy and get it delivered tomorrow. You get your Prime membership, next day delivery, same day delivery. So you just buy stuff and we tell ourselves, oh, I need this. So I got to buy it. I need that cable. Uh, I need that adapter. I need this. So that's good. I need that. You actually don't really need much at all. I'm not saying that everyone should leave a, lead a monastic life and sleep on a futon mattress and have an oil lamp. But that was a big learning for me is that you literally don't need much in life. Simplifying, that taught me the, the biggest learning of simplifying our life. A lot of times in today's world, people say like, oh, we lead such fast-paced life. We just need to slow down. And I believe the term slow down is incorrect. The better term to use is to simplify. It's not like we're driving faster every single day. We can't. Right? If we were driving faster every day, we'd be driving at 1,000 miles an hour today. We're not eating faster every day. We're not talking faster every day. But what we're doing is we're doing too much. Too many people in our lives, too many things in our life, too many engagements, too many this, too much that. We just need to simplify, not slow down, simplify our life to the key people and things in our life that have been defined by our purpose. Purpose should define everything. So I would say that was one of the biggest learnings. Another one would be defining one's purpose in life, clarity of purpose. Purpose defines everything else in life. Purpose should be the spine. If we took away our spine from our back, we'd just collapse. Our spine holds everything together, our head, our legs, our arms, our whole body, everything is anchored to that spine. And your purpose in life is your spine. Define your purpose, have your purpose, define your priorities, then you know what to focus on. The byproduct of that is you live a rewarding life. But without purpose, there's no lack of clarity of making decisions of going forward, the where to invest our energy. And the third one I would say would be understanding how the mind works. We have the most powerful tool in the world sitting in our head. We don't need the complicated understanding of it, but rather just a basic understanding. And once we have a basic understanding, we'll have enough know-how to harness it and navigate it. But without the basic understanding, we'll always struggle. And, and this book gives you that basic understanding that you need. Because as you've read, it's, it's kept very simple. Yes. Well, I love what you just said, because my tagline for Passion Struck is unlock your purpose, create an intentional life. And yeah. I think there's so much to be said about that. And one of the ways I came up with this whole concept is I was reading Grit by Angela Duckworth, which is a great book. And I believe in her teachings, and a lot of it really resonated, but 
the more I thought about it, and she starts out the book by talking about West Point and that cadets are successful because they have passion and perseverance. And I went to the Naval Academy and I started to think back about my time there. And, and yes, passion and perseverance were important, but I think what allowed someone to get through and to become the best officer they could versus someone else had more to do with their intention and the choices that they make every single day to pursue that. And so that to me was eye-opening because you do have to have focus, but you, in addition to that, I think you need to have that grit inside of you to carry on when you have hard moments. But if you don't have the focus to begin with or the intentionality, then you can have as much grit in the world as you want, but it's going to be focused in the wrong area. Exactly. I've had people come up to me and say, Dunapani, can you teach me how to focus? And I go, yes, I can. And then I ask them, once you learn to focus, what will you focus on? And they go, I don't know. <laughs> so focus needs to go hand in hand with purpose. In the start of the book, I talk about leading a purpose-focused life. And people talk about living, being intentional with our lives, right? Lead an intentional life. It's like, okay, how would you lead an intentional life if you don't even know what you want? But And that's why I start the book off with that conversation I had with this German entrepreneur in Munich, where he says to me, in Dhanapani, you, you always talk about how important purpose in life is. Why don't you teach about finding your purpose? Why do you start with the mind and focus? And I go, well, if you can't focus and be self-reflective long enough, how would you then be in a state of self-reflection long enough to discover what it is you want in life or what your purpose is? Focus allows you to discover your purpose and also allows you to stay committed and devoted to leading a purpose-focused life. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at PassionStruck.com slash deals. Now, back to PassionStruck. Yes, and that's absolutely where you start is you even give the saying that it may appear that seeking one's life purpose is where we should start. In fact, it's not the case. And you really go into that the mind is the foundation for building a focused life. And what is the difference between the mind and awareness? Everything is in context of how I'm teaching, right? So with another educator speaker, it might be defined differently. So I define the mind as a vast space with many different areas within it. Awareness as you, is you. You are pure awareness. You could look at it as a glowing ball of light traveling to different areas of the mind. So if my awareness goes to the anger area of the mind, it lights up that area of the mind, and I become conscious of being in the anger area of the mind. My awareness goes to the happy area of the mind, it lights up the happy area of the mind, and become conscious of being in the happy area of the mind. At any given point in time, my awareness can go to any area of the mind it wants to go to. Wherever my awareness goes, that's the area of the mind experience. From this, we can conclude two things. One is there's a clear, distinct separation between awareness and the mind. The mind doesn't move, but rather awareness moves within the mind. And once we understand that, the next thing to realize or understand is that 
at any given point in time, I can move my awareness to a particular area of the mind. And if I don't do that, my environment, which are the people and things around me, can move my awareness to some area of the mind I want to go to. So someone comes up to me and says, Dandapani, your shawl looks ugly. They can take my awareness to the angry area of the mind, upset area of the mind. Should I choose them, allow them to do so? But if I had control over my awareness, I could stay where I am right now in my mind and say, I see you're trying to take me to an upset area of the mind, but I choose not to go there. And that's extremely empowering. So the goal ultimately is not to control the mind, but rather to control where awareness goes within the mind. Yeah, I almost think of it as mind is the hardware and awareness is the software. You also describe it as your mind is like a mansion in the book. Yes. One simple analogy is to look at the mind as, as a mansion where you have a thousand rooms and every room represents a different area of the mind. In the mansion, I can go to any room I want to go to. But if I go to the master bedroom, I experience the master bedroom. If I go to the library, I experience being in the library. When I'm in the library, I don't experience being in the master bedroom. So the same way, when you're in the anger area of the mind, you're experiencing that area of the mind. You are not anger. Rather, you are a person in that your awareness, pure awareness in that area of the mind. All you have to do is shift awareness out of that area of the mind to a different area of the mind. And one thing I want to point out here that's important is that I think a lot of times people misunderstand this and they think that if I move my awareness from an area of the mind that I don't want to be in to another area of the mind, all that I'm doing is ignoring the problem. That's not the case. All I'm trying to say here is that you now have the choice to choose when it is you want to engage with the problem in your mind. You can say, yes, in room 52 has an unresolved issue I have from my childhood. I'm not going to go there right now, but next week on Wednesday at 4 p.m., I have a session with my therapist. I'm going to go into that room then and deal with it. Until then, I'm going to keep my awareness out of there. And it doesn't work for me. It doesn't make sense for me to repeatedly go in that room upheave all these emotions and cause chaos in my life repeatedly every day. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. And I've had a number of behavioral scientists on the show. And one thing that's been common amongst all of them, whether they're in behavioral economics or they specialize in eating and helping you with fitness, it's that our micro choices that determine how our life ends up. And I also have an upcoming book and one of my chapters, I call it the conscious engager. I remember when I used to live in Washington, DC, they had a bar that had three levels and the bottom level was hell. The middle was purgatory and heaven was on top, <laughs> but you use kind of the same layering to describe the difference between the conscious mind the subconscious mind and the super conscious mind. And it really resonated with me. So I thought that might be a core tenant that you could teach the audience about. If we talked about the mind as being a vast space, if you were to look at it in three phases or three states, the, the conscious mind, which is the instinctive mind, is one state of mind. The second state of mind is the intellectual mind the subconscious, and then the third state of mind is the superconscious or the intuitive area of the mind or the creative spiritual area of the mind. At any given point in time, your awareness can be in one of these states of mind. So if you're in the instinctive area, which is the conscious mind, then you are in the animal nature of the mind. You're thinking of eating, sleeping, procreating. That's the state of mind. If you're in the subconscious, you're in the intellectual area of the mind. You could be having intellectual conversations. You could be engaged with a memory from the past as well, reliving an experience you've had 20 years ago. That's the subconscious. And then if you're in the intuitive area of the mind, the superconscious area of the mind, you could be in a creative, spiritual, intuitive area of the mind. Not one is better than the other. Ultimately, it comes down to what it is you want in life and your ability then to move awareness within the mind and choose which of these states of mind you want to function on a day-to-day -day basis. For the life that I want to live, being in the superconscious area of the mind serves me the best. If I was in the debate team, then I might want to be in the intellectual area of the mind because then I can have intellectual debates endlessly to help my team win the next debate competition. My chapter is 
a little bit different. I describe that I think most people today live their lives like a pinball. And I use the game of pinball as an analogy where instead of playing the game of pinball, they're letting the game play them. And we have so many distractions in life. And I think pinball is just like that. You've got the bells and whistles and bumpers and all these distractions going on. And that's why most people, the ball just goes down the gutter. But for those who can really master it, it takes an immense amount of focus and being present as you're playing the game to understand how that game has its trickeries and other things and the elements that you need to do to overcome them. And I think it's interesting because when we look at historical figures, I like to look at the life of Abraham Lincoln because we all see him as the greatest president or one of the greatest presidents who ever lived. But if you look at his life and the first 15 to 20 years of his adult life, he self-describes himself as a driftless piece of wood floating along the water, letting it carry him wherever it wanted. He lacked purpose in his life, and he went from being a surveyor to a shopkeeper to a lawyer to a politician, back to being an attorney, et cetera. And it wasn't until, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, when he truly discovered that abolishing slavery was his main purpose, did everything kind of shift for him and everything came together. And from that point forward, he lived with extreme focus on what was most important. But I think we look at a person's life like that and we don't see that even someone that we think is as great as Abraham Lincoln really suffered in this. And he had to be taught to use this focus to control his mind. And I think one of the things you go into in the book is you start talking about at the end of it, things such as being present, our worrying, our fear. And I wanted to go through each one of those, but I was going to set up being present with you with a previous guest that I had on the podcast, which is a Naval Academy classmate of mine who ended up becoming the chief astronaut at NASA. He was that and a Navy SEAL. And he talks about that being present is the most important thing that he has found in his life. But he said he learned it first when he was at Bud's because he said, I had to concentrate so hard just to get through one moment to the other so I wouldn't quit that I learned to be very present and what was it going to take me to get through the next five minutes, the next hour, getting to the next meal. And then when I was in battle, I kind of applied that same thing. And I had trained myself to have so much focus that when that battle was around me, I was able to take away all the distractions and I knew what the mission was and what we had to do. And then he gives another example that he was on a spacewalk. The spacewalk is something that he's practiced probably hundreds of times. But in that moment, he was out there with an Italian astronaut and that other astronaut suddenly got water in their helmet because there was a defect in the cooling system. And he said, I don't remember at all the actions I took. I just knew that I had to be there in that moment and I got him in the hole. And he, he just said it was a culmination of years and years of just practicing having that focus that allowed me to be in the present. But I think we often use this term, be in the present too much. And I think that's something you agree with. So I was hoping you could use kind of that story maybe to show the difference of just saying we're being present in the moment and then actually doing it. Yeah, I mean, look, you just go on social media and see how many quotes you can find that say, be present, live in the moment. People post these things without actually teaching you how to be present. And if you go back to awareness in the mind, and the mind doesn't move, but it's awareness that moves within the mind, and that we are pure awareness traveling through the mind. Using that understanding, I would define being present as my ability to focus. If I can keep my awareness on you, without it shifting to something else, I'm being focused on you. So I define focus as my ability to keep my awareness on one thing or one person for a period of time until I choose to move it. Now, if I can focus on you, I can be present. But I can't be present if I can't focus. Being present is a byproduct of being able to focus. I don't need to be 
in the moment. I don't need to practice being in the moment. I don't need to be practicing being present. I just need to give who and what I'm with my undivided attention. As soon as I'm doing that, I'm in the moment. When people say practice being in the moment, practice being present, that's incorrect. That's a byproduct of being able to focus. If I can keep my attention on you, my awareness on you, I'm already concentrating and I'm right in this moment with you. I don't need to practice being in the moment. I just need to give you my undivided attention. The byproduct of that is I'm being present. And you can't be present if you can't be focused. Have you ever had the conversation with someone where you're talking to them and they've looked at you and go, where are you? Yes, of course. So the technically correct question to ask is, where is your awareness? Because if someone asked you, where are you? The correct answer is, well, I'm standing right in front of you. But based on the book, they could ask, okay, where is your awareness? Then you go like, yeah, my head is here nodding to what you're saying, but my awareness, my ball of light has drifted off to some other area of the mind and I'm no longer being present anymore. Even though I'm physically present with you, mentally, I'm somewhere else. And that's why understanding awareness in the mind is the key to learning how to focus, which is the key to living in the moment. And if we don't live in the moment, then all the experiences we work so hard to have in life, the moments with our children, the moments with our spouses, our friends, the holidays, the special experiences we choose are for nothing. Get to that experience, then we can't even enjoy them because we can't be present. If you were someone who that happens to, and I think for a lot of people, this is a common thing. They work throughout the day, tremendous amount of stress. They get home and their spouse, partner could be a roommate, could be a child, starts talking to them. And as they're talking, their head is drifting away to the problems of the day that they were trying to solve, the chaos, other things, which I think probably a lot of the listeners experience. Is there one piece of advice you could give them if they find themselves stuck doing that, that is a trick that can help them bring their mind back to the forefront and concentrating on that person in front of them? Yeah, one great trick. Buy the book, read it, understand it, <laughs> apply everything in there, and you'll do it. There's no other shortcut. <laughs> I put 25 years of learning into this book of practicing. It's not something I read 10 other books, summarize the contents of 10 other books and put it in this book. This is 25 years of my learning and personal experience and personal practice, plus everything my guru taught me in the monastery and learning how to focus has gone into this book. That's the only shortcut. That's the quickest way to overcoming this problem you just described. Read the book, understand it, and be incessant with the application of it in your daily life. It's not complex because everything I talk in the book is really, really simple and easy to understand. I don't get into scientific definitions. I don't get into biology, none of that stuff. To talk about how the mind works, awareness in the mind, control how awareness goes in the mind. Here are ways to integrate concentration into your daily life. So you can practice it, you can track it, make progress, and learn how to do it. The only thing that's required is your desire for wanting to lead the focus life. And if you don't desire it, you'll never live a focus life. Desire comes first. How badly do you want it? How badly did your classmate wanted to graduate from the SEAL program. He must have wanted it badly enough because I don't believe that's an easy program to get through. I have a friend who was a former Navy SEAL officer, and he didn't describe to me that training process as something like, ah, that's a piece of cake. He must have desired to be a SEAL so badly that he got through that program when others gave up. Because I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, that they try everything they can to make you give up. They certainly put you through as many hardships as they possibly can to get you to want to quit. That's for sure. And I remember a story that he told me that there happened to be a Thai officer who was an exchange student who was going through buds with them. And he said this gentleman had next to zero body fat on him and they're sitting there in this water and they're freezing. And he goes, as cold as I was, I looked at him and he was just buckling 
because he was so cold, he could barely even stand it. And he goes, but watching him, I just thought to myself, if he's not going to quit, then there's no way I'm going to quit. And he said that there were just tons of moments like that, where sometimes you have a good day, sometimes you have a bad day, but he said, there's truly this belief that he got that if things are going to suck, then it's better for them to suck at the front than in the rear. And so he always tried to go through it by showing leadership by example, which I think there's so many things that you can learn from his experience and what you're talking about here. But ultimately, it was his desire to graduate, right? That got him through, that he wanted to graduate as a SEAL. He wanted to go through the whole program. In the same way, one must have a desire to lead a focused life. And if you don't desire it badly enough, this book is useless to you. You will never do everything I say in this book. And why would you have a desire to lead a focused life? For me, that desire comes because you want to experience all the things in your life, all the people in your life that you work so hard to make time for or to create. People go to work nine to five, nine to six, nine to seven, work so hard so they can earn money to go have a great meal somewhere or to go on a five-day vacation in Europe or someplace special. But yet when they get to that place or they get to that meal, they're so distracted taking photos of their food, texting, that they don't even enjoy the food or enjoy the location they go to. And then they go through life never experiencing anything fully because they can't be focused. I don't want that. I want to get to the end of my life, be able to look back and go, I was there in every single moment, good, bad, ugly, with all the people I love, with all the experiences I created for myself. I was in there fully, 100% experiencing all of it. Now I can say I lived a rewarding life. And I get one shot at this life. I don't want to waste it. And by being able to focus, I know I can walk away going, that was a full life. That was a really full life. Yeah. So one of the things I did want to ask you about is, and you describe it a little bit differently in the book, but I think right now so many people are dealing with what I see as chronic hopelessness, helplessness, loneliness. And if someone is struggling with one of those things, how can understanding the inner workings of the mind help someone overcome those feelings? Because you know the mechanics of how the mind works. You can't harness or control or steer something if you don't understand how it works. A lot of people can drive an automatic car, give them a stick shift car, and they won't know what to do with it. All of a sudden, you've got gears and a clutch. Most people can't drive a stick shift car. But if you taught them how to drive a stick shift car, now they can do things with it. You know, they can maneuver the car, they can steer the car, they can direct it, they can slow down, they can use the gears to slow the car down to go faster. Same with the mind. If you don't understand how the mind works, how would you then begin to harness the mind and steer it? You have the mercy of the mind and your environment around you. I give the example in the book that one of my friends is a Photoshop expert. He took a picture of a Mini Cooper, sent it to me on the email and says, here's a photo I took of a Mini Cooper and I touched it up. I wrote back and said, so what? Wasn't anything special. And this was back in the day. And he wrote back to me and says, they don't make four-door Mini Coopers. He'd taken a picture of a two-door Mini Cooper, put, stretched it out in Photoshop, added two more doors. I couldn't tell he touched it up. And what that told me was that he had such a good understanding of Photoshop that he could leverage that understanding to create what he wants. The same with the mind. If you understood the mind really well enough, you could leverage that understanding to overcome the challenges that you're having in your mind, whether it's loneliness, depression, sadness, hopelessness. But I think the other thing also with hopelessness is that so many people are just focused on me, myself, and I. And that's why you're feeling hopeless. Stop being selfish. Start thinking about other people. Learn to serve. When your world is just about you and what you want and what you need and how you can be happy, I can guarantee you, you will experience sadness, hopelessness, 
a sense of loss, a sense of without purpose. But when you take an approach of how can I serve, how can I make other people's lives better, how can I make the environment better, your life will start to change. But for most people today, it's just all about me. How many likes can I get? Can I put another picture of my face on, on Instagram next to the thousand other pictures of me? Me, myself, and I, where we live in a very self-serving world today. Very much so. I mean, everything is about individualism. And that's why one of the core things I'm trying to teach with the guests who are on this show is to show people how they can be better, live better, but most importantly, impact the world by living it in a world-centric way. I think the whole core being of us having this life is to be in service of others. And if you're not doing that, I don't think you're ever going to feel fulfilled or joy or ultimate happiness or whatever emotion people want to say, because you're always going to feel empty inside. Think about serving others. You know, very few people ask the question, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I help you? It's about what can you do for me? Yeah. And I think that's a good segue into this question, which is what is the difference between a focused life and a purpose-focused life. In the book, I define a focused life as the ability to be engaged with who and what you're with all the time. So if I'm spending time with people or doing things, I can be completely present in those things. That would be defined as being able to live a focused life. A purpose-focused life is the people and things that I choose to engage with or focus on in my day is defined by a purpose. Whereas a focused life, there's no overarching purpose that defines who and what I engage with or focus on during the day. Someone comes up to me, or I'll just focus on whatever I need to that day. But it's not defined or driven by an overarching purpose. Looks take companies, right? Companies, a lot of successful companies have defined their purpose, their mission, and their vision. What their employees do throughout the day is driven by that vision and mission. Their focus is purpose focus. But if a company didn't have a mission or vision statement or clarity of what they were doing, then they would just be focusing on whatever came their way. And using that same analogy, I think almost all of us has made an excuse in their lives. I'm sure a lot of employees have made excuses to their bosses, but I wanted to understand, is there a correlation between making excuses and focusing or leading that purpose-focused life when we're prone to make excuses for our behavior? Behavior of like inability to focus? Well, I'm just saying sometimes when we find ourselves not focusing, we'll make an excuse for our behavior. And I always think that excuses serve a short term purpose, but ultimately they're a form of betrayal because in the long term, most excuses don't end up having the end result that we hope for. And I think some people are just prone to making excuse after excuse to cover up for their lack of focus in different elements of their life. I also feel like excuses are a way of not taking ownership over your life. I feel like if you take complete ownership of your life, there's no need to make an excuse because you can say, yes, I made that mistake. I wasn't doing this. You're correct. When someone points out something to you, you don't try to give an excuse. You don't try to defend it. You go, you're right. I did do that. Uh, I need to work on that to, to improve that or to make a change. You can take ownership. I think people who struggle to take ownership over their life make excuses. But when you can take ownership, there's no need to make excuses. And along with ownership, comes humility. You can't take ownership over your life if you don't have humility. You need to have lots of humility to be able to look at yourself and go, these are all the good parts and these are all the not so good parts. The collective sum total of these makes 
done the party and I can own it. I'm working on the not so good parts. Some of it I can change over the next few days or few months. Some are going to take a while, 10 years, 20 years. You have to be patient with me. It's, it's a big project I'm undertaking, and, but I can own it. While I'm working to change those things, I can guarantee you I'm going to screw up a bunch more times. I don't intend to, but I'm working with a defect here. So bear with me as I work to improve it, and I can own all of it. And because I can own it, I don't need to make an excuse. But that's very hard to do. You need to have a lot of self-compassion and self-empathy to do that. And something we were taught in the monastery, at least I could say my guru taught me to have a lot of compassion for myself, as to look at myself as a product, as a building under construction. It's not done yet. There's like rebar and concrete nails lying around. Still a work in progress. So there's no excuse. Yeah. You never walk into a construction site and look at the, the form and says, oh, I'm sorry about all the nails lying around and the rebar and the broken cinder block. They don't say that. It's a construction site. What do you expect? It's a mess. So when people go like, Dandapani, you're a mess. I go, yes, I'm a construction site. I'm not finished yet. And I can't own that. So I don't need to make excuses. Okay. And one of my favorite sections of the book was chapter two. And I liked how you kind of started it out by talking about a conference that you were at that had the former secretary general, but one of the former chiefs of staff for the president happened to come up to you and made a statement about making the case. So we've talked today a lot about focus, a lot about the need to focus more, you know, someone, yeah, maybe sitting here listening to this and saying, you know, I've, I've heard you guys talk. I've heard about how this focus can help, but can you kind of really anchor it down by making the case of how in doing so will it change their lives and help them to become self-realized if that's what their end goal is to become? Yeah. I think at the end of the day, that's why I spent the first two chapters of the book selling to people why you should live a focused life. Because unless people buy in, and I talk about three impetuses for leading a focused life, one of them, the greatest impetus for leading a focused life is that is death, that we all die and we have one life. I'm a Hindu, I believe in reincarnation. So after I die, I'll reincarnate, but God knows who I'm going to be in my next life. But I do know I have one life as Dandapani. And I do know that this life is finite. It's not short. It's finite, meaning there's a clear, definitive end to it. At some point, I'm going to die. Whatever time I have on this planet, I want to live a great life. And the only way I can do that is if I have clarity of purpose and I have the ability to stay focused on that purpose. And the fact that I have a finite life drives me every day to live a focused life. I had an entrepreneur ask me many years ago in Istanbul. He said, Dhanapani, how often do you think about dying? And I said to him, to be honest with you, I hardly ever think about dying. But what I do think about almost every single day is that my life is finite, meaning that at some point I will die. So how am I going to live the life, the hours that I have, the days that I have, the weeks that I have, the months that I have? If I can identify who and what's important and I can focus on that, the byproduct's going to be extremely rewarding. And to me, that's the only reason, the greatest impetus for leading a focused life. Once you realize that you have a clock that's counting backwards, it has a timer on it. You just don't know what that time is. But if you do, you live a very different life. The same way if I said to you, just say we're just starting this podcast and going for an hour, Five minutes into the podcast, someone came up to you and said, John, you have 30 minutes to live. Would you do the rest of this podcast? Yeah, you cover this in the book. Most people are going to say no, and they're going to want to be with their family or something else. I, in fact, I yeah. love that exercise, how you say, if you had 20 years to live, would you stay here listening to me? If you had five years to live, would you do it? If you had two years, if you had three hours, and it's interesting how people change their responses to that question. They do. And we all have a timer, right? We just don't know what the timer is. No one would argue, regardless of your faith, your religion, 
no one can argue with the fact that we're going to die one day because there's no thousand-year-old man walking around, a woman. So at some point we're going to die. We just don't know how much that time is. But once we realize, not understand, but realize the fact that our life is finite, then we, we see the need to focus. Let's get focused so we can live a fulfilled life with whatever time we have left. It's supposed to waste this precious thing called life. I think that's uh, why that saying, live like you're dying, carries so much weight, but we don't think about it in our everyday lives yeah. like we should. We should remind ourselves every day, not that we're going to die, but rather I like to frame it slightly differently and say that our life is finite. We have a finite amount of time. And that reminds me every morning that, okay, let's get focused. Well, the last area I wanted to cover with you was the topic of yeah. fear. In the book, and it's in the last chapter, you talk about that fear is the portal to all lower emotions. And I was hoping you could discuss that a little bit. In the Hindu philosophy, if you look at the mind, and how would I best describe this? You've heard of chakras, or what chakras may they are centers of consciousness, and most people are aware of seven that go from the base of the spine to the top of the head in Hindu philosophy. Each of those centers of consciousness are connected to a certain area of the mind. There are seven more that go from the upper regions of the hip to the soles of the feet. The highest of those, the one around the hips, is fear and lust. And below that is raging anger, retaliatory jealousy, and then it goes all the way to the soles of the feet where it's murder, malice. So that's all the lower states of mind. Fear is at the very top. It's the highest point, you should say, or the entry, the doorway to all lower states of mind. So as soon as someone gets to the fear of the mind, they're the doorway to all lower emotions. After fear, they will experience raging anger. Keep going past that, they start to get into retaliatory jealousy where they start to attack someone back again. So fear is an area of the mind we want to help get out of. And the first step of uplifting humanity is to get people out of the fear of the mind into a more intellectual area of the mind where they can start to reason. We have things like news that keep you in the fear of the mind. And it behooves people to keep the majority in the fear of the mind because it's easier to control someone when they're in the fear of the mind. An elephant. How does a scrawny little man control a giant elephant? Make the elephant afraid of you. When the elephant's afraid of you, this massive animal that can pull logs, push a wall down, will be afraid of you. Will do anything you say. Keep humanity in the fear of the mind and they'll buy whatever you sell them and do whatever you tell them to do. But that's not how we advance humanity. We've got to get humanity out of the fear of the mind to a reasoning area of the mind. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the elephant. When the elephant are young, they secure them more arduously. But then as that elephant gets older, it, it starts learning learned helplessness to the point where they can have a small stake in the ground with it attached to just one of its legs and it still won't move because it has so much fear because it's yeah. tried so many times to break free in the past. And I think our lives and the cells that we put around ourselves are very much the same. And it's learning to break through those, as you're saying, that I think can carry such an enormous positive impact on our lives if we can find ways to confront that and overcome it. Yeah. And in the book, I teach people how to use the understanding of awareness of the mind to overcome fear. And it's not difficult to do once you understand the inner workings of the mind. Well, for the audience, I did want to also point them to the TED Talk that you gave that now has, I think, over 6 million views, because I think that yeah. that is a very good primer in addition to the book for them understanding your teaching. But Dadapati, if someone wanted to learn more about you, what are some ways that they can do that 
besides buying the book, which I, of course, will put links to Thank you. in the show yeah. notes. I would say my website, dandapani.org. I have a weekly newsletter. It hasn't been quite weekly as I prepare, finishing up the book and prepare to launch it. But I do send out a weekly with some insights and tools. So if you want, it's a free subscription. I do have an app you can download at the App Store or Play Store that has some courses in there, a lot of free audio and video as well that you can listen to, some practices, rituals that you can help you practice concentration on a daily basis. So those are the things I would recommend to check out. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. It was truly an honor for me, and I know this is a core topic for our audience to, to really understand, and it can be life-changing if you implement the practices that you outline in the book. And as you said, the way you write it is simplistic in the way that you describe the different techniques that you have to do, but it's kind of building blocks that you provide in the book, and you've got to follow them if you want to be able to do this on a continual basis. Yeah, and exactly. The book is may just only be a good read for you, but unless you understand and practice consistently what's in there, it's not going to help. But if you do, it's life-changing. The contents of that book has changed my life, and I know it will change yours too. You only just need to implement and practice what's in there. These are teachings that are thousands of years old. Thank you so much for coming on the show and congratulations again on this amazing book launch. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Greatly appreciate it. What an inspirational interview that was with Don Dapani. And I wanted to thank Don Dapani, Amanda Lang, Portfolio, and Penguin Random House for giving us the honor of having him come on this podcast and us helping him launch his new book. Links to all things Don Dapani will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you purchase any book from the guest that's on the show. All proceeds go to supporting the show and making it free for our listeners. If you're new to the show or you would just like to introduce this to a friend or family member, we now have episode starter packs both on the Passion Struck website and on Spotify. And they are collections of our fans' favorite episodes episodes that we organize into topics to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. Advertiser deals and discount codes are all in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. I'm at John R. Miles, both on Instagram and Twitter, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. And if you want to know how I book amazing guests like Don Dapani, it's because of my network. Go out there and leverage yours. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast interview I did with the one and only Rachel Hollis, who is a repeat number one New York Times bestselling author, top ranked podcaster with over 100 million downloads, and one of the most sought after personal development speakers in the world. The last two years, two and a half years really for me have been filled with those defining moments. It's been a really hard couple of years on personal levels, professional levels, I've experienced a lot of loss, a lot of grief. And in that process, as brutal as it's been, I am a completely different person. I'm a completely different mama. I'm a completely different writer. I'm a completely different everything. I wanted to remember that every great thing I have in my life came on the other side of hardship came on the other side of a difficult season or a hard lesson to learn. The fee for this show is that you share it with family and friends when you find something that inspires or motivates you. If you know someone who's dealing with distraction and would love to learn the power of focus, please share this episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give us is when you share this show with those that you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, live life passion struck.